So I heard a story recently of two friends who went on a long walk together. These friends were walking together as, as this sometimes happens, maybe as too often happens. They started talking about current events. They started talking about the news. Right? Because the news is always bad, the more that they talked, the more that they spiraled down into depression and discouragement and anger and confusion. And in particular, they were really hung up on one especially tragic local news story. But as they're walking, they start to notice this like weird guy like, sort of lingering like 10 feet behind them. Like he's clearly eavesdropping on their conversation. Right? And eventually, after a little while, this guy walks up beside them and he says, what are y'all talking about? And he said, don't you read the news? Haven't you been paying attention to what happened? And he looks at him and he smiles innocently and he says, what happened? And so they start to tell him about this man named Jesus, a man that people thought was an up and coming social, political and religious revolutionary. Right? They say this was a great man. He was a kind, wise, courageous man. We thought that he was going to be the hero of the story, but then the powers that be arrested him in the middle of the night and held a kangaroo court and executed him. The best person that we've ever known shamefully murdered on a cross. And now we're confused, we feel lost, we're sad, we're angry. And then this stranger says something incredible to them. He looks him in the eye and he says, didn't you know that it had to be this way? You read the news, but do you read your history? And then in what must have been the best Bible study lesson of all time, he opens up the whole story of the Bible to them, and he shows them how it all points to Jesus, the Messiah, the hero of the story, coming, living, suffering, dying, and rising again. Every chapter of the story, Christ the story, his the glory, probably sounded, that lesson probably sounded a lot like the song that we just heard. And that's a story from Luke 24. It's a true story that happened on the road between Jerusalem and a little town nearby called Emmaus, a few days after the first Easter. And some of you have figured out, as those two walkers eventually figured out, that the stranger leading Bible study on the road was none other than the resurrected Jesus himself. You say they get to where they're going and they go into their home and they invite this stranger to stay for dinner. And then he actually does kind of the socially unconventional, the, a little bit audacious thing. And he prays for the meal and then he takes the bread and he breaks it. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are open and they realize that it's Jesus. And then I imagine that this wry smile sort of crossed his lips and then he vanished. Apparently the resurrected Jesus can apparate and here's the thing that's notable about that story. Okay, after the fact is the two friends are recounting what happened to them. Okay, they don't say like, man, didn't he just have this aura of just love and wisdom and, and glory about him? Or wasn't it amazing when we touched the scars in his hands? Wasn't it cool when he vanished? What they say in Luke 24, 32 is, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up to us the scriptures? They say we could feel truth and hope radiating in the core of our being when he told us the story of the whole Bible through a Jesus-centric lens. 
Now, here's what I take from that story, okay? Number one, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The best way, the truest way to read the Bible is to look for Jesus on every page. Now, there are a lot of like scholars and kind of critics and theologians through history have had a problem with that statement because they say, do you really believe all of these stories that happened over the course of thousands of years to different people, different people wrote them down. You think that whole thing is about Jesus? And I would say that that's a claim that you have to test on your own, right? And you have to answer, can you give a better explanation of the fact that these stories about Adam, about Isaac, about Moses, about David, about these prophets, about these failures and these weird figures throughout history, they all seem to culminate perfectly and intentionally in this one person, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. I don't think there's a better explanation for the Bible than that the whole thing is about Jesus. Right? But second, when you really begin to understand the Bible in this way, when you begin to read the story in this way, something will inevitably happen to your heart. Once you start to see Jesus on every page of the story, you'll start to see him all over your story. And in fact, his story begins to invade your story, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, your heart is set alight with joy and gentleness and hope and humility and a desire to tell other people. Now, what does that have to do with our passage this morning? Luke chapter 9, there's another story about Jesus. He goes up onto a mountain with Peter and James and John, kind of his inner circle of friends, and when he's there, he's transfigured before them. God sort of pulls back the veil and shows them just briefly the glory and the majesty of Jesus. They realize who they're really dealing with, the Son of God, the King of the universe. And then it says that Moses and Elijah show up, and they start talking to Jesus. And Luke 9.31 says that Moses is talking to Jesus about his departure, Except for the word for departure right there in the original language is the word exodus. And so what it literally says is Moses is talking to Jesus about his exodus. Right? It's as if the person who sort of was the stand-in for the rehearsal, like the dress rehearsal, shows up to talk to the star about the real exodus that's about to happen, the real deliverance that he's about to bring about. And did, if you, in Luke 24, verse 27, where does it say that Jesus started his Bible study on the road to Emmaus? It says, beginning with Moses, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you want to find Jesus in the beginning of the story, the life of Moses is maybe the best place to start. So last week, we didn't just take a break from kind of old, obscure, ancient stories in Exodus to celebrate Jesus for one week on Easter, right? We simply pivoted from Jesus in the book of Exodus to Jesus in the book of Mark, and now we're going back. And if you've been here for this Exodus series so far, you've already seen Jesus' fingerprints all over the story. If you compare Moses' birth in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 with Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, the, the similarities are undeniable. Exodus 3, I think the second person of the Trinity is there talking to Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb and the Passover meal points to Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in our covenant feast. And the manna that God gives his people in Exodus 16 points to Jesus, the true bread of life. And that brings us to Exodus 17, our passage 
this morning, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. It's a short passage and only two points to this sermon, how this story shows us ourselves and how this story shows us Jesus. So this story reveals something to us about ourselves, and then this story reveals Jesus to us. Let's read this together, Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with, with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Father, we pray that through your word and by the power of your spirit, you would give us conviction where we need conviction. You'd give us comfort where we need comfort. We don't just want more information upload. We want transformation. Would you transform our hearts for your glory and our good? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. First, this passage shows us something about ourselves. Did you see yourself there in the story? Did you see yourself among the people? God is leading the people from Egypt to the promised land. He's literally leading them through the wilderness of sin toward their new home with him. And there are a few important details to remember at the beginning of the story, okay? First of all, remember how it is that God is leading them, okay? He's leading them by the cloud of his presence. It's a cloud by day and a flame by night that goes before them. And so when the cloud moves, they move. And when the cloud stops, they stop. In other words, they didn't end up here by accident. Okay, they're not lost. God didn't abandon them. He led them to this specific place on purpose. But second, remember everything that they've seen God do in recent weeks. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt by humiliating Pharaoh and defeating the greatest military power on earth at the time. And then as they've traveled through the wilderness, he's provided food and water for them in both ordinary and miraculous ways. And in spite of their doubts and their complaints, he continues to lead them and to love them. But thirdly, and this is important, okay, we need to have some sympathy for these people here, okay, because thirdly, this journey is taking a long time. Historians tell us that the trip from Egypt to Canaan where they were going should have taken like a week to 10 days on foot, And they've been on the road for months. Whether it's because God is moving slowly, stopping frequently, whether it's because he's not leading them along the shortest, easiest path, the journey is proving to be long and painful. And the question we should ask is why? 
Why not just get there? Why not just get it over with? The resurrected Jesus can teleport. Why can't, these, why can't God just teleport them to the promised land? And it's because God is trying to teach them something along the way. He's trying to teach them something in the wilderness, namely the necessity of daily dependence on him. They didn't just need God to rescue them from Egypt as a one-time event so that they could kind of get back on their feet and walk independently again. Faith is a daily way of being. That's what God is trying to teach them. Dependence is as necessary on every step of the journey as it was on the first step of the journey. And so God brings the people to Rephidim, and that name literally means resting place. So he brings them to this place called resting place, but when they look around, there's no obvious water supply, and they freak out. Now, maybe they waited a few days. Okay, maybe they tried to be patient and stay calm, but that doesn't seem to be what the story says if you read it as it's written. Okay, it seems like they basically walk in, and they drop their bags, and they take one look around, and they start complaining about the service, quality of service, right? The people quarreled with Moses, verse 2 says, and they said, give us water to drink. Give us water now. There's no indication that they ever said, well, God has helped us every step of this journey so far. And if you notice, there's no indication in the passage that they ever speak to God directly at any point. Right, so in other words, they don't remember the blessings of the past and they don't pray about the future. They immediately and vehemently start complaining to Moses, give us water right now. And then notice how things snowball from there. Okay, in verse 2, they say, give us water. So they demand God's provision, and they demand it according to their own plan and their own timing. And then in verse 3, they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us of thirst? And so it's as if they're saying, okay, the person, the God that we just saw part the sea to deliver us and destroy our enemies must have brought us out here into the wilderness to die of water deprivation. You see the irony there? Did you bring us out here to kill us? So their demand for God's provision leads them to doubt God's protection. And then finally, verse, verse 7 tells us that they were saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is God even with us? Remember, they're probably saying that while the cloud of his presence is hanging directly above their heads. Their demand for God's immediate provision descends into doubting his protection and finally arrives at denying his presence altogether. We're on our own out here. We have to fend for ourselves. We're probably as good as dead. The first thing that this story teaches us about ourselves is to pay close attention to our demandingness. It teaches us that we should have a healthy concern, a healthy regard about the ways that we angrily or anxiously demand something of God or other people or the world around us. What are the things that you demand in your life? Another way to ask that question is what is the one rule that you sort of write over the universe and say, don't ever break this rule, God, others, myself, what is your demand that you place on life? The places where you say, God had better give me this, right? or she had better do that for me, or they had better behave 
in a respectable, polite way when we're in public. At the end of my life, I better have achieved or accumulated X, Y, and Z, or I'm not sure that I'll even believe that God is with me or that he's good at all. Now, important caveat, there's a difference between desires and demands, okay? So we're not just talking about desires here. We'll come back to desires at the end. But what I'm talking about is the things that you vehemently, harshly demand, the places where even if you would never say it out loud, you think at the end of the day, at the end of this week, at the end of my five-year plan, at the end of this life, God or others, my family, my job, myself, better have done this or I'm not sure that I'll believe anymore. I won't be okay. Pay attention to those demands and ask God to give you a healthy fear of that demandingness. Why? Because demandingness reveals three destructive lies that take root in our hearts. Three lies that our demandingness reveals. First, demandingness shows you who you think is really in charge, who you really think is at the center holding things together. Second, demandingness shows you that you think that you know what's best better than anyone else possibly could. And third, it show, demandingness shows you that you believe that you need something more than God himself. So the things that we demand and the way that we demand shows us who we think is in charge, who we think knows best, and who we, what we believe we need more than God. So a few years ago, Brentley and I, my wife, we were taking a sonship course here at Hope over the summer. It was like the summer of 2020, taking sonship with masks on, socially distanced, whatever. Right? And if you're familiar with sonship, there's a part of this course where they give you what's called the tongue assignment. Right, and the tongue assignment is basically for the next week, don't use your tongue in any way that is critical or complaining or judgmental or grumbling or self-justifying. And the point of the tongue assignment is to draw your attention to your self-justification. The point of the tongue assignment is that you can't do it. You won't succeed. And when I get the tongue assignment, I'm like, but I can do it. <laughs> I'm going to be the one, right? And so we leave Sonship, and that night, probably literally like an hour later, we're walking our dog around our neighborhood, and there's this woman in this neighborhood with these two annoying little wiener dogs, and she loves to let these dogs out of her house off leash. All right, it's happened multiple times before. We walk by, they come running out, and they come up to our dog and start jumping and snapping at our dog, right? And it drives me crazy. And this time I'm like, enough is enough, right? And so these dogs come out and I just lay into this woman. I demand that you put your dogs on a leash. I demand that this never happens again. You are a terrible person. You're a monster. You're ruining the neighborhood. And then I actually said, I really said this. I said, if this happens again, I'm going to let my much bigger dog off her leash and she's going to tear your dogs apart, right? <laughs> My, Brentley's covering your face over here because she was with me. She was like, wait, who's the monster, right? And so within like 45 minutes of getting this tongue assignment, I failed it in the most miserable way you could possibly imagine. And so then I go back home and thanks to my wife's love, I feel convicted, right? And so I go back out and I know where this woman lives. And so I go knock on her door to apologize, right? And the door opens and it's her husband. And I'm like, hey, I just spoke to your, your wife in a really rude 
and mean way, and I'm here to apologize. And he says, you're not talking to my, how dare you talk to my wife, right? How, who do you think that you are? I mean, he lays into me. Who do you think that you are talking to her that way? And I'll tell you who I thought I was, right? I thought that I was the last line of defense for dog law in McElwee Manor, right? <laughs> Even though my dog has gotten off leash and out of our yard dozens of times in the last year, including yesterday. (laughs) Just in the same way that when I'm on the road and I justifiably and understandably express road rage, I think that I am the one who has to enforce the rules of the road or no one else will, even though I break those rules all the time. Just like In my heart of hearts, I believe that if I don't demand and enforce fairness and competence and justice in the world, no one else will. Never mind the fact that if I was judged by my own standard of justice, I would be hopelessly condemned. My harsh demands, and I mean this is a a, a through-going theme through my life, my harsh demands for fairness and competence and justice from those around me, from my neighbors, from my wife and my sons, from myself, show that I don't really believe that God is in control. I don't believe that he's at the center holding on to things, and so I have to be in control. And in fact, I would do a better job than he does. And more than that, it shows that I don't really think that God knows what's best, and so if I don't act for what's best, then no one will. And most fundamentally, my demandingness shows that I think I need something other than God, apart from God, better than God, to be okay. What is your demand? Right? Is it your demand that your kids turn out a certain way? Right? Is, your, is it your demand that the world would give you autonomy and agency such that you can self-determine who you are and what you will be like every step of your life? Listen to this quote from the therapist Larry Crabb. We are a demanding people. We demand that spouses respond to our needs. We demand that our children exhibit the fruit of our godly training. We demand that our churches be sensitive to our concerns about providing certain ministries. We demand that slow drivers get out of the passing lane. We demand that no one hurt us again the way we were hurt before. We demand that legitimate pleasures long denied be ours to enjoy now. Can you imagine an army where new recruits give orders or a company where errand boys set policy? Yet mere people shout orders at the universe. Such foolishness is the inevitable result of taking responsibility for securing our own happiness, a burden that's simply too heavy for our shoulders. When we assume responsibility for what we desperately require but cannot control, we irrationally demand that our efforts succeed. And listen to this. Wedged tightly in our thirsty souls is the ugly disease of a demanding spirit. Do you see yourself in the story yet? Cheer up, it gets worse. Okay? <laughs> After this whole event, we're told that Moses renames this place Massa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. If you find a small town, in the United States that used to be called Traveler's Rest, 
And a sign coming in, it said, welcome to Traveler's Rest. But someone has crossed out Traveler's Rest and spray painted over it in big red spray paint. Welcome to Testing and Quarreling USA. Right? You know something serious happened in that town. Massa and Meribah. And what's interesting about those two words is that they both have a legal connotation. So the testing word could be translated trial, as in a courtroom trial, a courtroom procedure. And the quarreling word really means like a legal complaint or a legal argument. And if you pay attention to the orientation of this whole story, you see that what the people are actually doing is bringing a list of complaints against God and demanding a trial. What they're really saying is, here is our list of demands, and based on these demands, we don't think that God is our protector or provider, and in fact, he's a liar and a killer. And he better get down here and explain himself. Can you feel the audacity of that? And again, I want to pretend like this is unfamiliar territory to me until I realize that it is exactly familiar in me. God, you haven't met my relatively short and reasonable list of demands, and you better explain yourself if you want me to keep going along with you. So to sum it up, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, all the evidence they've seen of God's protection, provision, and love, the people bring an angry, untrusting lawsuit against God, and they have the audacity to call him an absentee father and a murderer. And so it makes sense that this story has a sad ending, right? God says to Moses, take the staff in your hand, right? And remember, this is the staff that turned the Nile into blood and brought down the plagues and split the Red Sea and then brought it down collapsing on Egypt's army. Take that staff and go stand before the people. And Moses takes his staff and he hauls back and he smacks the closest person in the head and this blast, this shockwave of judgment goes out and they all fall to the ground dead, their demands before God, silenced forever. The end, let's pray. No, that's not what happened right? That's not how the story ends. Maybe that's how it should have ended. What should happen to new recruits who call the general a coward? What should happen to interns who call the CEO inept? What should happen to sinners who call the holy God a liar, a murderer, a failure, and a fraud? But instead, Moses lifts his staff And he turns around and he strikes the rock and water gushes forth to save the people. Now listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is Paul reading this story in Exodus 17 with a Jesus-centric lens. He writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Where is Jesus in this story? He's there on the rock, He takes the hit. The legal decision that our demandingness deserved, Jesus gets that decision instead. His breaking is our blessing. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. The way that God's people in Exodus 17 receive mercy and the way that we receive mercy is because Jesus was broken and poured out on the cross for us. All throughout the Bible, God is referred to as the rock. And the reason the Bible uses that language is because he's strong and he's stable and he's immovable and he's seemingly unbreakable. But then at the crisis moment of history, God's beautiful justice on an apparent collision course with our audacious sin and demandingness and rebellion. And in that moment, the rock is broken to save our lives. And the rock was Christ. Holy Spirit, let this saturate our hearts. Let this shock us anew. Jesus broken to give us living water, love, life. Now, here's the thing. This message, the gospel, besides being the only message that can save us from sin and death, it's also the only message that can heal us from our demandingness. Now, maybe as we've been reading this story, you've had the thought, okay, but the people needed water, (laughs) right? They really did need water. And that's exactly right. You and I, we have real needs, real needs and We have good desires that God has given us, good, unmet desires. But it's only seeing Jesus dying for us that can change the way that we address our needs from anxious, angry demandingness to restful dependence. Let me say that again. It's only when you see what Jesus did for you on the cross that your demandingness with all of its anger and anxiety and arrogance is slowly transformed into dependence and trust, and prayer. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, when you're anxious about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, remember the birds of the air. Your father takes care of them. He knows what they need, and he knows what you need, and you're worth more than hundreds of sparrows. How do you know what you're worth to God? The value of something is determined by what a person will pay to claim it. How do you know what you're worth to God? Look at the cross. How do you know that your father is in control and that he knows what's best and that he'll provide for you? Look at the cross and look at the resurrection. You have real needs and you have good desires, desires that God gave you, but only Jesus can free you from the world's two approaches to meeting those needs and desires, right? The only two approaches that the world has ever come up with is to harshly, relentlessly, ruthlessly pursue the things that you demand or to give up in resignation and cynicism. And only Jesus can save you from both ruthless demandingness and resigned cynicism. It's only when you set your eyes on the cross, when you see what God has done to redeem you, the demandingness is transformed into prayerful dependence and anger and anxiety are slowly replaced with rest and with trust. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Your father gave his son 
to claim you as his own. He didn't bring you this far to kill you in the wilderness. He will bring you home. He knows what you need and he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you would give us the honesty to see ourselves in the story. Even today, would you help us to be honest and vulnerable with you and with others about the demandingness, about the laws that we have placed over life that show that we think that we're really in control, that we think that we really know what's best and that we need something more than you. Would you help us to be honest about that, but would you meet us in our honesty and meet us in our conviction with the grace, the beauty, the love of Jesus? It's only Jesus, his act of love on the cross, his power in the resurrection that can free us from our demandingness, that can free us from anger and anxiety, teach us gentleness and humility and trust and dependence. And we need you to do that in us by the power of your spirit. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.